um, we're still processing this. We're still trying to understand what happened and why. And the things that the biggest impressions to me was one, you know, the sheer audacity of American citizens to stop a congressional proceeding, the sheer audacity of an American president to incite a mob to do that. Um, below that, the amount of what I see as lies and misinformation that these people believed and spread to others. And our nation is processing these horrific images of people beating up police officers, vandalizing federal property, and disrespecting the rule of law. And um, I think my final impression is to realize the horror that uh, some of these people were carrying, that we have images of some of them carrying plastic handcuffs, speaking of arresting, injuring, or killing political leaders, including Democrats and Republicans, and even including the Vice President of the United States, Mike Pence, who was following the law rather than participating in his boss's delusionary coup. To me, those are the chilling aspects of what we witnessed and what we are still wrestling with and which may not be done yet. Um, we're told there may be more violent events coming. But why could this take place? What's the bedrock beneath? It wasn't a singular event. There's lots of things that led into it. There's a, a bedrock of lies and misinformation that have come from the current president for four years and have thoroughly confused what I see as a set of gullible and misguided Americans tour. It's, I think this has happened partly because of a disrupted media structure and uh, big tech companies introducing social media platforms where citizens are confused and disoriented about what is basic fact and basic truth anymore. And a lot of psychology research shows us that people, if given a choice, they migrate to information that confirms our own biases or worldview rather than challenges our deeply held beliefs. So that, that confirmation bias, as they call it, is at work here but I think also it's led to our political culture in America becoming uh, increasingly polarized and toxic. But I don't believe, you know, it's an accurate reflection of 328 million Americans. Rather, I think we have got what we see here, Torah, I think is smaller sets of very vocal and violent people uh, take to our streets and destroy property, seek to do harm both last week and in previous months. And I think just to you know, round out in terms of the question, why could this happen? I think you layer then onto the surface of those bedrock issues. We layer onto the angst and disagreements people have had and are having about coronavirus and wearing masks and vaccinations, um, the economic pain and unemployment that has come uh, this past year has, has added, I think, to the kind of pent up frustration we're seeing. And also the race and class issues um, that related to those uh, and that have emerged in the last year um, and that have been stoked by political parties, including the president. And I think the president has frankly channeled a lot of this into violent and uncivil outcomes rather than trying to foster a sense of common ground and common good among the American people. Those who defend the president would say, well, this is not really... Um... Uh, his responsibility because it has been the radical left who has been the violent people and, and 
it's really um, a culture which has been developed there. And I would say, well, he, he never incited violence, but still you think he, he is responsible. Can you explain why? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think he's used a lot of animating language uh, for years. Uh, but, you know, in his in his tweet that said, come to the Capitol on, on January 6th, it's going to be wild. Trial by combat was the, the quote that Rudy Giuliani used. You know, there are people there who really believe and they are suffering. They're in between work. Our words matter. And when you are saying things like, let's have trial by combat, go back to his early campaign when he was saying to, about Hillary, lock her up and leading chants, lock her up. And uh, calling journalists, uh, you know, putting journalists in pens and directing his crowd to have animosity toward journalists, toward animosity towards political opponents. I think from the very beginning in the last four years, this person has animated you know, hatred toward the other, toward anybody who disagrees with you and, and violence. And that has really boiled up the sentiment among the more radical fringes in America. And I do think this last week we just saw, uh, you know, the manifestation on the, on the right and his, um, you know, his followers more than anything. And um, what do you think will be the consequences of this in, in, in a longer uh, perspective? Um, well, we could talk consequences on political culture, also from a religion perspective. Um, and maybe I'll tackle, you know, from the religion perspective, I think we are seeing more secularization, um, people falling away from faith as a general trend in America, particularly among our younger generations, uh, according to Pew Research. And I, and I think, unfortunately, that will continue, if not accelerate. And, and you see people holding signs and you know, expressing their Christianity uh, during this event. And I, I think some people, especially young people, look at that and say, that's not what I want to be part of. You grew up as a, as a pastor's kid. What changes do you see in church culture and Christian culture from uh, your childhood and up until now um, among conservative Christians when it comes to well, this? I saw this kind of behavior or, or viewpoint uh, back in the 80s and 90s growing up. I could see, so this is all aligned with what I saw back then, it just, it isn't the level of violence or believing of outright lies that I saw back then in my viewpoint. And I, what I think is going to happen is those who identify, those of us who identify as Christian in America, I think we're going to see more division and segmenting. And, you know, the majority of charismatics and evangelicals seem to be staying solidly in the fold of the Republican party. I hope that we see large groups of Christians wake up from this horrible dream and realize that we've been, mis you know, they've been misled and that maybe there would be some repentance. And frankly, I'm noticing even in the daily coverage I'm reading in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, they, they quoted the last couple of days, people from the crowd, you know, uh, including some who are Christians who expressed remorse or re a bit of regret, but often they're still believing some of the lies of, they think, Nancy Pelosi, their political opponents are drinking children's blood, just ludicrous things, some of them. So my hope is that you see some kind of enlightenment or eye-opening, but my worry is that, is that I, my biggest worry is that people will continue to be suckered into political lies that reinforce cultural or spiritual worldviews, 
that we, and if we, if that happens, I think what we end up with is more heretical religious movements or cults where people are not rooted in objective facts or pursuing critical thought in their Christian lives, the way they're not doing that, I think, in their political lives. And what we seem to see happening right now is both for, I'd say, the bigger, you know, Catholic uh, Christian communities and Protestant Christians in America were increasingly split into two camps. And I think one camp sees the Republican Party as part of the church and furthering the gospel of Christ. And then the other camp, I mean, maybe some of this other camp are Democrats, but I think it's also people who just think more critically about politics and that we don't fuse our faith with American politics or political parties. And it's like, these are two divisions within American religion right now, it seems like. And I'm not, I, I'm not sure on the exact data, maybe we'll get our data journalists to have religion unplugged to explore more of those kinds of groups. But um, I just sense that's kind of what seems to be uh, emerging right now in religion. Um, we met the first time in New York or up in Long Island where you were living uh, at that time in 2016 uh, during the ongoing uh, presidential campaign. Um, and many were caught by surprise that Christians should embrace Donald Trump uh, for a host of reasons, but especially as he didn't come across as a, as a devout Christian and, and had a lifestyle and a history which in, in many ways uh, is contrary to, to, to what are Christian ideals. How do you analyze his... his um, appeal to so many Christians in the United States? I mean, maybe I was surprised how many voted for him, right? I, he got about 80% of the so-called evangelical vote. And, you know, he knew he needed a political base and his consultants quickly told him that evangelical Christians in America are a solid base. And so he pursued that base and he won the majority of them over in 2016 and again in 2020. I think fewer, slightly fewer in 2020, but he still won the majority of evangelical, those who identify as evangelical Christians. And while many of them, like you said, they questioned his character, I think he convinced, he made them feel that they were converting him. As he was a secular playboy, you know, wealthy New York guy who, who had converted to their cause. I think for, <laughs> the, the sick thing is that for Christians, that's a dopamine hit. When you see someone who you think is converting, you want to invest in them, you want to believe in them. And so they felt they were converting him to, to be more of a person of faith. And they also liked that he, they felt he was fighting for them and listening to them at his rallies. And so I think they also felt that they were, that he was like them, that he, and so he, he was cast out by elites, you know? And the truth of the matter is that Trump has always been, I think a person of poor character who wasn't always welcome in all the circles of, you know, elite circles. And that bothered him, of course. And that's what bothers him right now being increasingly ostracized by mainstream and elite culture in Washington, New York, and everywhere else in America, you know, he, he's realized that this group responds to the further he turns against, you know, elite culture, they, they love that. And again, it's like a dopamine hit. So they seem to feel he was used by God and he had allowed them and encouraged them to think that way. What would you say have been the main features of Donald Trump's policies when it comes to faith and religion. And, you know, one thing I, I think it's good to be clear on is that it's possible to be a never Trumper, which is what I am. I, ne I never voted for him and I never will. And 
because of all the things we're talking about and what we've seen in the last week, in the last four years. But it's possible to do that and also, you know, say not everything he has said or done policy-wise is terrible. And so, like, if we talk about his policies on faith and religion, there's some I probably I like and some I don't like, but he's been a big advocate for uh, religious freedom and uh, th through the State Department, making that a high priority. You know, he hasn't demonstrated a great amount of respect for other faiths and religions, but I do think some of the people involved in the religious freedom efforts at the State Department do care about, you know, safety for Muslim minorities and in America and abroad, et cetera. So I think there's been some, some decent policy there. And I do hope the Biden administration does continue a focus on, you know, religious freedom. You know, he's essentially flipped the Supreme Court to being more conservative. And I think seven of the nine justices identify as Catholic now. And that's interesting. Um, I'm not saying I support every one of those nominees necessarily, but uh, he, you know, he's had an impact there. Um, and then I think on the more contentious issues on two things I would point out, you know, he has been in his rhetoric and he's been anti-Muslim, anti-immigration, very, you know, specifically point out, we don't want Muslim immigrants, um, a Muslim ban he put in place at one, at one point there. And then also on social issues, he's been, you know, he used to be pro-choice before he got involved in politics. And then one of his elements of conversion was to become pro-life as a politician. And so I think, uh, you know, religious voters who, who make that their hot button or top issue, they love that about him. So I think those are some of the features of what he's focused on. And I think it all helps explain why a lot of religious and Christian voters in America have supported him. One of the things I've found a bit puzzling is that he has built um, um, a circle of evangelical uh, friends or, or advisors or, or what we should call them. He also have had his uh, evangelical advisory board uh, headed up by, by Paula White, who is a prosperity preacher based in Florida. Uh, and when I look at these people, I, I have a sense that they don't share very much theologically. <laughs> a lot of them are, uh, or some of them are very charismatic and, and so on, and other are uh, very non-charismatic Southern Baptists. Uh, and still they seem to, to find a community around Donald Trump. Yeah, his own personal faith just has never seemed very deep, profound, or pronounced or anything. I think he said he's, con he just, he's not Presbyterian anymore, but... Uh, which was, he was kind of a Presbyterian in name only before, didn't, doesn't go to church much. Um, uh, but now he says he's non-denominational, which is maybe an interesting reflection of his council of advisors, like you point out. I mean, yeah, I, I, early on in the campaign, I had heard and, and read that, you know, he had a large group of, his consultants brought to New York, a large group of evangelical leaders to try to gain their support. And, and a lot of them bought in like you said, Paula White is a charismatic. If you, I encourage you to Google some of her videos and you'll see some rather bizarre, you know, spiritual behavior there. About um, angels coming from Africa to, to change the election and so on. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So, you know, she's an interesting person. Now, um, some of the other figures, you know, Mike Pence has some bona fide respect among Midwest religious conservatives, both sort of, he considers himself an evangelical Catholic, but he was a person who, by selecting him as vice president, anchored that uh, the sort of religious evangelical Midwest base. Um, Mike Pompeo is a, a born again Christian who 
um, has been a Trump loyalist and stalwart for religious freedom. Trump's personal lawyer, Jay Sekulow, is interesting, who I believe is a Messianic uh, Jew who converted to Christianity, you know, who, um, who litigated religious liberty cases at the Supreme Court for years before joining Trump. You've seen some of these people like Jerry Falwell Jr., who was head of Liberty University uh, and had a terrible catastrophic fall from leadership in recent months. He was a big Trump supporter and advocate on television and on had Trump come and speak at that university a few times. And of course, it, that was established by his father, who was the, the founding father of the Christian right. Exactly. Uh, you've also seen now this is kind of an interesting point about this past week. Um, Al Mohler, Robert Jeffers have supported Trump, whereas Russell Moore, their chief lobbyist or whatever, spokesman for the Southern Baptists in D.C., has been a never Trumper. And Mo uh, Russell Moore, I would encourage any of your listeners to uh, check out a piece he wrote on his personal site called, called The Romans Road. And he he basically said, I don't care if I get fired. I am speaking the truth of, of why this has become so despicable, the support for Trump and the Christian blind uh, faith in this man, et cetera. Now, um, and it's uh, quite interesting with, with Russell Moore because he was very vocal against Trump during the uh, campaign, but he was probably uh, forced to, to keep silent. Well, I think the Southern Baptists, we see a split there of the, those who support Trump, those who don't. And um, it was interesting that some of their leaders who supported Trump uh, uh, broke, you know, broke away from him and condemned his be the behavior this past week. And so that's interesting to watch, to see who is still standing by Trump. It's getting fewer and fewer people uh, who are standing by Trump through this. But I mean, in terms of his own evolution, I haven't seen much change from Trump from when he started his campaign by making gaffes, like saying two Corinthians instead of second Corinthians <laughs> when he spoke at Liberty till last summer when he, you know, after the Black Lives Matter protests, he decided to have a military guard to make a pathway for him to walk across the street and stand in front of a church that had been vandalized where he stood there and just smiled at a camera and held a Bible upside down. <laughs> you know? So it's, He's, to me, he's demonstrating for the world that he saw religion as a tool for political and military power. Uh, would you say that the intersection between faith and politics in the U.S. has changed in important ways uh, during your lifetime? You, you mentioned a bit about what you have saw and heard as a kid, but, but are we in a different place now than we were, uh, say, in the early 90s with uh, the religious right and Ronald Reagan and, and uh, later with George W. Bush and so on. I feel like we are back to kind of the 80s or 90s. Unfortunately, I thought we had changed from that for the better. Um, I thought American Christians were starting to realize, as I did, uh, you know, as a teenager uh, moving into my career as a journalist, that it's dangerous to hitch faith and pol to politics so closely and that it's dangerous to use politics to impose morality or religion and to fight culture wars. It, you know, for me, the, one of the things I read by, was by James Hunter, who is a leading sociologist at the University of Virginia, who's done a lot of great research and writing um, uh, that shows that we can't approach culture with that mindset. And that when Christians historically have approached politics that way as, as, a, as a fight, when they approach culture that way, as a fight, as a war, that those efforts are, they backfire, 
and they're also damaging. They're damaging to culture. They're and they're damaging to to Christendom, I think. And so, you know, James Hunter proposes in the, in his book to change the world in 2010, which is an excellent book. He suggests that Christians uh, pursue a path of what he calls faithful presence, and that um, whatever part of economy or culture that you are called to, you know, it's fine and good to be involved in politics, but it's how you do it. It's how you approach it. And he, I think he advocates more for pursuing a common good. And yes, you have to be shrewd and wise and politics are politics, but you don't seek to bludgeon and kill your enemies. It's not about trying to fuel and start culture wars. It's about a faithful presence. So sadly, I don't, you know, I don't think Back to the question, I don't think Protestant evangelicals in my country have listened or understood that theory yet in large numbers. And I worry that we're going to see culture wars growing worse and that we might see, um, look, we have more guns sold in America this past year than at any recorded time. And so I worry that we're going to see more violence and that some Christians in America seem to be uh, uh, falling into this, I really think, unfortunate uh, trap. Um. It's difficult to have this conversation without mentioning the killing of George Floyd uh, in, in Minneapolis in, in uh, May last year. Uh, how important are race relations to understand the religious and political landscape in the U.S. as it is now? Well, I, I think they're essential. I mean, because uh, our history Slavery was present in many countries. We're, America isn't singular in that, but we have an open wound. We have injustice that we haven't, I think we've we learned that we have not fully dealt with. Look, the George, George Floyd, we did a story at Religion Unplugged. One of our interns uh, did an amazing piece where she just started looking at, you know, realized that George Floyd, he had uh, a faith in God. Uh, we found, you know, we talked to people he had gone to church with in Houston. And um, at times he tried to minister to others. And, uh, you know, there's, there's some nuance here, but I think, I think religion and faith and Christianity among, uh, as, as the sort of dominant faith in America is a key, can be a key towards healing, both um, seeking justice and uh, repentance, as well as forgiveness and reconciliation. I don't, I think there are a few other places, there's few things I see that can heal people the way the common ground of faith and religion can. I see it in, you know, even in churches where I see people of different ethnic backgrounds in America, different races and, you know, nationalities and everything, hugging, caring for, loving one another. I see less of it in politics. I see less of it in uh, schools or, or wherever here. It's hard to get over these big hurdles in our society. And um, while, while we see some difficulties about religion and faith in America right now, I also see some real positives. I think it is one of the few forms where we can get past this quicksand that we seem to be stepping in, at least uh, large chunks of our society seem to be stepping in. I think it's the only hope, really, one of the only hopes we have. Based on numbers from Pew Research Center and others, it seems like race is more important to explain political attitudes among Americans than faith. Uh, white evangelicals are mostly Republicans, and as you mentioned, and black evangelicals are mostly Democrats. Uh, how do you understand this? 
Yeah, I mean, we see some shifting around, I mean, within those numbers, like Georgia, you know, has gone more Democrat, what well, looks like the, the recent Senate election that uh, was more Democrat. And meanwhile, in Miami, for example, Cuban Americans voted Republican. So, I mean, you see, you see some shifting, but to me, the big takeaway, though, is making one's political party your religion, you know, um, I think that just entrenches people into having a harder time to find common ground when you are so entrenched in this binary world of Republicans and Democrats and the platforms or the personalities of those, uh, of those parties. It's, um, it's easy to elevate those parties as quasi-religious, to see someone not in your party as the other. To me, that's the big disconnect here. And I don't know how we get beyond this really. Um, I think we need leadership. I think we need, in, in media, I think we need better quality information. We need regulation of technology companies that will lead to better quality of information for our citizens. And another, back to James Hunter, another piece of research he did recently in 2020, um, he and his team surveyed like thousands and thousands of Americans. And the big takeaways they found, Americans in 2016, and then even more so in 2020, have lost faith in institutions. Uh, here we go. It's called Democracy in Dark Times. It was done in November 2020. And if you Google that and James D. Hunter's name, you'll, you'll, you'll see the statistical evidence of the division. And I think it's, to me, that's the, one of those deeper issues that we've lost faith in institutions you're working with King's College in New York City, which is a Christian college based right off Wall Street. So it's, it's, it's uh, in the middle of, of uh, the Big Apple, really. Uh, and uh, how do you try to foster these kinds of attitudes with your students? Um, well, I think it's, we just try to be conscious to, 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 to discuss these things. Um, and we try to... I mean, the King's College, the, the curriculum we have is about politics, philosophy, and economics at the core, liberal arts. We try to go back and read, you know, Aristotle and, re, re, you know, help people learn to think and, and write critically. And we try to, you know, teach them about uh, comparative religion. You know, they, they have to take classes on the Bible, Old and New Testament, but also comparative religion. Um, I, I think we try to encourage um respect and thought rather than, um, you know, programming people to be minions of a certain, you know, a certain viewpoint. And uh, this last week, I, I, you know, I've gotten uh, email from at least one alum. I'm going to read you part of a quote here. One student wrote to, to myself and to the president of the college and to some others, I think, and said, is it was at King's that I personally experienced a beautiful transformation, turning away from a dangerous strain of radical right-wing thinking shared by so many of my contemporaries from the agricultural industrial Midwest, and indeed extremism in any form, and turning toward a more rash, rational nominalism in the pursuit of the common good. I think, you know, I think that's kind of the key is, is trying to help people to help young people understand what is what is the common good, what you know, what is the Bible, what does the Bible talk about? 
Sorry. <laughs> uh, one last question. Uh, this uh, January, something his historic will happen in Washington, D.C. as the second uh, Catholic president in the history of the United States will be inaugurated. Um, the first one was John F. Kennedy uh, back in 1961. Um, what do you expect from uh, Joe Biden from a faith angle? You know, we know he's a Democrat. We know he's grew up Catholic and that his Catholic social teaching and catechism, all that mattered a lot to him. We know that he was pro-life earlier in his career, but he's, you know, he's, he's pro-choice politically. And so some, you know, conservatives see that as a real issue that, that on that particular issue, he's not, uh, you know, he, he's changed from Catholic teaching. And so we've, you know, he's been, he's the second Catholic president after John F. Kennedy. Now, some more conservative Catholics in America think, well, he's not Catholic because he's not pro-life and doesn't agree with all the Pope's teachings. But I think basically, while he may be a, while he may be a liberal Catholic and more, and more liberal politically, uh, his rhetoric during the campaign, I think it does reflect a more, the Catholic social teaching is there. Uh, he's someone who has had suffering in his life. I mean, he, when he was a young congressman, he lost his wife in a car accident and one of his children. And so uh, I, think, I think he is the kind of person who has a faith background and a, an experience background that can bring people together a bit more in America in, in ways that we've, been, that we've been talking about. Do I think he's perfect? No. But I think when it comes to uh, character and communication, at least in my book, I, I give him higher marks than Trump. And I do hope he demonstrates some leadership, uh, at least some rhetoric and communication that can help bring the country together. He may, may agree with the Bible more than Trump did on loving your neighbor. He may, I think he understands suffering more than Trump does from a personal standpoint. I think he understands compassion uh, more than Trump does. So Micah 6, 8 talks about what, uh, what does the Lord require of you but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly. And, you know, I think that's the hope. Thank you so much, Paul Gladder, for taking the time to, to talk to us. Uh, we really appreciate it and uh, love to stay in touch. Thanks, Tor. Great to be with you. This episode of the Religion Unplugged podcast was hosted by executive editor Paul Gladder, edited and produced by Peter Freeby. Special thanks to Religion Unplugged managing editor Megan Clark. The Religion Unplugged podcast is a production of religionunplugged.com and is a part of The Media Project, a nonprofit dedicated to equipping journalists to cover religion. To read our award-winning global religion news coverage or to find out more about Religion Unplugged or The Media Project, visit religionunplugged.com or follow us on Twitter at religionmag.